Welcome everyone to one of our BGJ podcasts for the month of February. I'm Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone Joint Journal. We'd like to thank you all for your continued comments and support for our journal podcast series, as well as a big thanks to our many authors and colleagues who have taken part. The topic of our podcast today, I think, will be of real interest to many of our listeners and readers and likely relevant to several of our practices. So firstly, I have the pleasure again of being joined by our Editor-in-Chief here at the BJJ, Professor Farah Stand. Welcome, Prof. It's great to have you back with us, as always. Andrew, thanks for asking me. Farah and I are delighted to be joined by another of our editorial board colleagues here at the Journal, Professor Dominic Meek from Glasgow, to discuss their editorial entitled, Is It Time to Reconsider the Use of Hydrogen Peroxide in Hip and Knee Arthroplasty? Welcome, Dominic. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, Prof, maybe I come to you first, you know, sort of to kick us off. I suppose, you know, what, why did Dominic, yourself and your co-authors decide to write an editorial on this topic in particular? So, a, cu- a couple of things. I mean, this is something that we published many years ago when we started popularizing single-stage revision. And th- those protocols, which I think were fairly influential in changing the way North America views single-stage revision and increasing its adoption. It was no longer an endoclinic thing. It was now a wider thing with some evidence from the UK, had hydrogen peroxide in them and were copied by some of the North American big big centers, including the Ortho Carolina study. So rather embarrassingly in recent times, we've faced a situation where we're having discussions with colleagues abroad who are using it and we're no longer meant to be using it. So that's always at the back of my mind and something we're considering. And then Dominic, and as as, as you may know, Dominic is the, the next president of the British Hip Society and has been you know, the powerhouse behind all good things happening at the British Hip Society for the last few years. And Dominic and his team were approached by BHS members, really asking what the state of play is and what could be done. And that went through the BHS Professional Affairs Committee. So really, it came from two angles. And coming at it together, we thought it was just a good time to, to really have a look at how this has come about, where we stand right now, and how we can help colleagues to reconsider what the role of hydrogen peroxide is at the moment and what we could do potentially to change that. Yeah, that's great. Probably it's really, like you say, I think I've seen on our centre as well, this sort of grumbling in the background of, of of this issue and actually bringing it back to the forefront is very much this editorial. And I think it's it's great that it's done that and, and, and the reasons why are very clear there. And Dominic, if I could come to you next, you know, before we look at maybe, I thought we'd maybe touch on infection as, as well as the content of your editorial about hydrogen peroxide, but... Could you give us a brief overview of what you think the, the current practice is in the UK? Well, sure. They, I mean, the current practice has had a marked reduction because of the MHRA review in 2014. So really, it's it's confined really to vented situations. You use it, wouldn't use it in a closed cavity situation where oxygen may get into the systemic situation. And it's reduced in concentration as well. Traditionally, it was 3%. It's down to 1.5%. And you're doing it with limited lavages if you are using it and washing it away with saline rather than and drying it rather than leaving it to do its bathing effect that it often did. As Faris has suggested, it had been used in combination with povidine iodine and chlorhexidine in the past. And that sometimes makes it a little bit difficult to work out exactly what those individual solutions have effect by themselves compared to in combination. And that's where a lot of the, the future research will lie. But in terms of where it was previously used in terms of cemented sockets and in the cemented femur, that's really dependent on local availability, which is markedly reduced now. Basically, it's not used very much in its traditional uh, role, which was the, the primary cemented hip replacement. 
Yeah, that's interesting because actually it's something again came up in our center recently about the the limited supply of it currently, and I think that is is likely potentially getting worse. And, and maybe if we move on to sort of the details more about how it, you know the, <laughs> the evidence for and against it, I thought we'd maybe just touch on the issue of infection, which is often the as 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 Faris has said, the situation in which it's been reported to be useful in terms of PG, PJI at the moment. Where, where are we in terms of you know the the current definition for diagnosis to kick off? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think ultimately it's useful if we have one definition, single definition of PGI. And in the UK, we've really wanted to go with Europe for once. And the European (laughs) Bone and Joint Infection Society definition really looks like the natural successor to the previous ones, like the MSIS definition in 213. And it's nice because it's just got a simple three-level approach to it, classifying it as Um, infection unlikely, infection likely, and infection confirmed. So it's nice and easy to use. And these are just based in fairly simple clinical and radiological and laboratory factors, making if infection is unlikely, there's no positive test to suggest that or confirm it. If infection is likely, there's some positive clinical features such as the raised serum, CRP, and another positive test like synovial fluid, microbiology or histology or nuclear imaging. And then infection is confirmed if any of the real tests from the confirmatory criteria are positive. And and it gives a fairly simple and an effective management plan for for clinical treatment. And interesting, just recently in the BGR last year, Sigmund et al. compared this to the International Consensus Meeting 218 and the IDSA 1213, found it was more sensitive and was better at reducing the number of uncertain diagnoses. So we're basically joined with Europe for this one. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a really nice overview you've, you've given there. And like you say, it seems to be something which is, like you say, nicely simplistic and actually very relevant to clinical practice. And in terms of, you know, moving on to the treatment of infection at the moment, where are we in terms of antibiotic sort of advice at the moment, particularly in terms of length of treatment? Sure. I mean, that's a great topic and one we probably could spend over an hour just in itself with too much really to discuss in a very short time. But to summarise, really, the courses of antibiotic are getting shorter. We're looking much more with our multidisciplinary teams for rapid switching to oral antibiotics rather than parental. Advantages of getting shorter stay and getting patients home. And ultimately, there's a big increase in the number of one-stage revisions occurring now. So naturally, that's going to reduce the number of needing antibiotics between stages in any case. Yeah. So I also believe that there's a pragmatic approach of the Sheffield group will reduce the use of antibiotics between cases as well. And actually, there is a good paper coming from that group, which will be in the Bone and Joint Journal soon. So keep a lookout for that. And then that comes on to really sort of after implantation as well. And that remains a hotly debated subject. Some people say, just treat it as an aseptic, just go back in one dose of pre-op antibiotics, others like 24, 40 hours, no real consensus at the moment. And that's where groups like the UK Perpetrative Joint Infection Group are looking at maybe hopefully trials with the recorded by Bajir, et cetera, will help. Some will go for extended cultures running up to about 10 days sometimes. But again, that seems quite long. Room for contaminations, false positives, etc. But basically, as I say, it needs more research than that. Yeah. And then if extended cultures are positive, usually people will give either a three to six month course of fever antibiotics for that patient. Yeah. But that's being reduced by a, a, a lot of cohorts as well. So, so lots of different things and room for lots of good research to try and work out what the best combination is. Absolutely. Prof, anything you wanted to add to that? 
Andrea, a couple of things really. I think the, the the first one is that sometimes when there is new data, even if it's randomized data, it needs to be replicated and people need to look at it critically. And there is one North American multi-center study that is not without flaws that has popularized increasing length of antibiotic usage after second stage surgery. And that's kind of rattled the cage a little bit. And people are a little bit confused as to, mm. you know, do you treat it as aseptic? Do you give a little, you know, a few days of antibiotics? Or frankly, should you give three months? And it is an RCT. It is a high level of evidence. But again, it's not an RCT without flaws. And I think this is one area where the UK and, you know, if we can depoliticize the collaboration between infection centers and make it research productive, then that's potentially something that uh, we can help with and do as a, on a UK setting. I think the, the other thing to highlight here, and I'm sorry to take up a few more seconds, is that this is never a homogeneous population. And that's where, you know, Dominic mentioned the MDTs. In reality, hosts are different, infections are different, polymicrobial infections, fungal infections. And so I think you need to treat the patient, the organism, the, 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 the challenge that you're facing at the time. And that's where that simple rule just, I don't think, can exist. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and as, I suppose related to that, probably, you know, we've talked about the research that's required in, in relation to antibiotics, things like that. But how... How are we? How do, do we define success of treatment? Because actually, that really is the key outcome, isn't it? In terms of then assessing how effective these these interventions are. Yeah, no, you know that's a hobby horse of mine, and thank you for 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 asking. And that I lived through two consensus meetings, and in the first one in 2013, a a very promising future high flyer for was I think a fellow at the time presented a, a wonderful paper and a set of slides on a an outcome metric for infection that didn't even mention the patient so it, it was all about you know everything was focused on whether you needed another operation or whether you needed antibiotics or not and and the reality is I think we've learned with you know with all aspects of outcomes that it should all be about the patient. And, you know, sometimes some patients, you know, can be on antibiotic suppression for life and be very happy with it. You know, other patients can have very successful multi-stage surgery and be crippled. So it's about the outcome for the patient rather than just the arthroplasty. And it's not just about the microbiology. And so I think we're not there yet is the answer, but we need a bit more qualitative work and we need ultimately a quantifiable system that looks at patient perception, looks at the outcome of the arthroplasty, if you like, in mechanical terms, and also looks at the outcome in terms of organisms and antibiotic usage. And that's, I think that's a good area for people to research and really look at this. But a bit like if we can't agree the definition or keep changing the definition, we're going to confuse the literature. Yeah. If we can't agree what the right outcome is, we're also going to struggle. So I think that's an area I'm really keen that people should focus on over yeah. the next few years. No, absolutely. And and maybe before we move back to your editorial, the last thing I just wanted to touch upon was in terms of, you know, there's this sort of uh, been discussions, a lot of discussion about centralization of services to manage PGI. What what are your thoughts on that? And where are we with that at the moment, do you think? Maybe I'll kick off and hand on, hand on to Dominic. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, France has moved very strongly in that direction. We are Clearly doing so, you know, Oxford started with an infection centre many years ago, and then other centres, we did that, and, you know, Dominic's group have done that, and people are increasingly doing it. There's no doubt the right thing to do 
for these complex cases is to have a strong multidisciplinary team. And you cannot have the the big expanded multidisciplinary team, including infectious diseases, microbiology, plastics, Mm -hmm. clinical nurse specialists, et cetera, everywhere. So I think that's a natural drift. I think there is a danger as ever that politics takes over and imposes Mm -hmm. some kind of structures on us. But, uh, you know, this is an area that is absolutely right for centralizing in centers that can treat these patients well, give them the care they deserve in a timely manner, and also record data. Yeah. yeah. You know, that the, the critical thing here is recording the data so we can learn. We can learn from it, absolutely. Dominic, anything you'd add to that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think centralization, I think it's, it's not the absolute bit of it. it. It's a secondary to what's developing anyway. We've looked in the British Hip Society at the Revision Hip Networks, And we found that actually locally, these have been evolving over time anyway, with natural networks established. And the people who are interested are going together, as Farah says, these multidisciplinary groups with pharmacists, microbiologists, plastic surgeons, infectious diseases, etc. And so naturally, they're already there. So by default, it does centralize with with those networks. And it's obviously important, you have to get these diagnoses of these organisms very quickly. And it's only by having that 24-7 availability of diagnosis and then treatment that you're going to be able to get the improvement results for the the patients. And I think a lot of the society guidelines from BASC and DHS support that. And obviously, once they're implemented, that, that, that will occur by default anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. Dominic, if just stick with you, I think we're moving, I know we've veered a bit away from the editorial, but it was a really interesting discussion about how, where, where we are with the diagnosis and management of PBI, PGI. If we come back to Sort of the hydrogen peroxide question, though, you know, you know, as you've already said, and you're saying the editorial, you know, it's traditionally been employed during hip and ER with proportionate benefits. What, what, what are those? If just gives our listeners a brief overview, what are those benefits that we we might see that people think that we see with it? Okay, well, I mean, traditionally it's been about cementing, and the main literature, to be fair, actually really, really supports pulse lavage. Yeah. For preparing the 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 the, the, the bone, and obviously there have been papers showing that it's effective hydrogen peroxide, but really hydrogen peroxide saline, there's probably not that much difference between them. There is, however, plenty of efficacy evidence about its efficacy as a topical mm. antiseptic. A three percent solution will directly affect the DNA and oxidation of microbe, microbial proteins, and so is effective at killing them. But the real interest, I think is particularly when use of this dreadful thing, the biofilm, that mm-hmm. we all find terrible to be able to treat, which typically we have previously done by excision, i.e. Mm-hmm. taking all the components out. But similar to some of the work that's been on acetic acid, hydrogen peroxide seems to be able to d- disrupt that biofilm and allow a more effective treatment. Press have demonstrated its effect on staphylococcus epidermidis biofilms, and it's been used clinically in arthroplasty-infected revision cases series. However, the trouble with those series is it's difficult to actually tease out because they're just case series what the factors are because they're used in a whole combination of other ones. As far as I said, povidine iodine or chlorhexidine in combination with it. So which one needs a good clinical trial to actually see what 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 is important in that? No, absolutely. I thought it was the, one of the really interesting take home messages from the editorial was it's really hard to tease out from not only the, is the literature quite limited and small in some ways, mm-hmm. but it's actually teasing out actually what effect is it actually having because lots of things are are being co- are contributing to it or, or yeah. potentially. So I thought it was a really interesting part. Prof, if I come back to you, you know, that those are the, the benefits. Obviously, as, as it's already been mentioned, you know, in 2014, the MHRA issued an alert relating to the risk associated with using hydrogen peroxide. Could you just give us a brief overview about what, what how that really came about? 
Yeah, I mean, in, they got a non-fatal yellow card alert in relation to cavitary surgery and basically gas embolism. And that triggered a, a review by whoever was advising the MHRA at the time. And they looked at the literature and, and within the literature, there were a number of cases of cardiorespiratory collapse within sort of seconds or minutes mm. of the installation of hydrogen peroxide within a cavity. And th th this wasn't just a collapse. There was sometimes surgical emphysema, a pneumocephalus on one occasion, gas in central lines and so on. So it was very real. It was a mm. gas embolism phenomenon. And that sort of led to a, a very much a finite decision that you could not use it in those settings. And, you know, one of the unintended consequences, if you like, has been the impact on, on orthopedics. There, yeah. there was only one orthopedic case from, from John Timperley and his colleagues about it. But it, it, orthopedics has been a, a bit of a secondary victim here. And many of the changes that come through for good safety reasons often have unintended consequences and, yeah. and th this sadly is one of those that's that's really interesting and uh, again in your editorial that you go on to say how that hasn't necessarily happened throughout the world and i thought it was interesting obviously we've got a little listeners from the us as well it's still used there off label is that correct in the management of pgi it is and you know i think you know P pji creates all sorts of challenges and in in the in the us it is still used by some centers there's a lot of debate over you know very much as dominic was saying which solution do you use which organism at which stage in the operation you know th th there's so much alchemy about the management of uh, of infection so it's it's tricky from that point of view but it's only adopted in the ortho carolina protocol and a bit like the informed study in the uk the author Carolina one stage versus two stage study is going to be a, a, a fundamental study in our in our thinking about one stage versus two stage revision. Absolutely, and, and, and Dominic, and you, we've already mentioned it a couple of times. You know, the alternatives. What what is the evidence for that? Is there any good high level evidence for any alternative solutions that are better or or, or as effective? Sure. I mean, one one of the main ones that's recently been discussed is the Calkins et al. paper 220, and that was dilute betadine as a randomized controlled trial with saline. And it demonstrated no detriment of the betadine on wound healing per se, which is one of the things people get concerned about putting antiseptics in the wound. However, it did reduce the infection, the peripsetic joint infection. There were a few caveats to this trial. Although it was randomized, the PGI rate in the saline group was actually over 3%, which is actually quite high. And that makes you wonder whether there were other confounders that we don't know about that actually were, despite them being matched in various principles. Also, the way they actually applied the betadine, it was bathed in the betadine, where it was just a bit of wiping with the saline, as opposed to it's not the same uh, same sort of way. The, the skin preparation was slightly different as well. So really, you know, not not entirely, but interesting. And I think the core to where we are going to go is with more randomized trials in that. It would be interesting to compare with chlorhexidine as opposed to betadine. Topical antibiotics have also been used by some of our spinal and upper limb colleagues. Mm. Uh, now, they may have different bacteria to what we're used to, but Again, recent meta-analyses don't support the use of topical antibiotic powder directly into the wound. And NICE only recommend that if it's part of a clinical trial. Yeah. So various things interesting where, where we should be going with it. But again, really a lack of hard evidence. Absolutely. And I think what from your summary there, Dominic, I think it highlights the importance of, of, the, of, the, of the studies and the trials moving forward, how important the design of them is going to be to actually give us the answers that that we need. And so maybe to finish off, maybe Dominic, I'll start with you and I'll come to you, Prof. Where do people stand you know, for our listeners 
who, who manage PGI every day. Where do we stand on the use of hydrogen peroxide at the moment, do you think? <laughs> it's. I mean, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis and an availability. I, I think it shouldn't be absolutely banned, but you have to be aware that, as we're saying, there isn't any literature to back you up if something goes wrong clinically. Mm -hmm. So really, on the back of that, I think we do need more clinical trials for it. And that's the only way forward, isn't it? Now, Prof, anything you'd add to that? No, no, I tend to agree. I think you've got to look at what your local policy is. But in principle, right now, in a UK setting, you, you shouldn't really be using it in a cavity. You may get in trouble if you do. Elsewhere in the world, you probably still can. I think the way it could be used in the UK would be in a in, a, in an approved, validated study setting. And someone needs to set that up. And I think this is a you know, tip of a bit of an iceberg. I think we're going to see more and more things that we thought were established suddenly being challenged because there's no evidence. And, you know, we're talking about one particular product here, but with EU MDR, UKCA coming in, you'll suddenly see things that you thought were commonplace, particularly implants, disappearing all of a sudden because there isn't the data that they need to have. So I think this is one area where good research is needed if people want to bring it back. And it may be a heavy lift and it may be tough to fund because we're looking primarily at the infections. But uh, I think it's worth looking at. That's really interesting, Prof. And a really nice point to finish on. So to you both, a really a sincere thanks for joining joining us today and, and putting under the spotlight a really important and relevant issue. And it was really good to have that discussion about PGI as well. It was really informative and, and so nice to talk to you both. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through social media and like. Feel free to tweet or post about anything we've discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us, everyone. Take care.